In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I revisit our 2018 goals, talk about raising funding, marketing at events, and we answer more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 396. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. We're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. What's the word this week, sir? Well, I uh, recorded a video this morning for Blue Tick with somebody who started a partner program, and uh, we basically walked through a process for doing LinkedIn prospecting and then feeding the prospects into Blue Tick to do the email follow-ups and get people onto a scheduled call, which is kind of the uh, whole premise, or at least the the starting point for where Blue Tick really started anyway. So it's uh, it's good. It's good to see that it's making, I'll say, not really making a name for itself, but it's going to be getting out there into much more people's hands. Do you consider Blue Tick more of a cold email tool or a warm email tool? A warm email. Um, so it does work for cold email, but cold email is basically a subset of warm email. So really, like you're with cold email, you're just trying to make that initial contact. And there's lots of companies out there that do that. But typically, once you've gotten them to reply, then they are completely hands off. Whereas with Blue Tick, I'm trying to do a lot of things to structure it such that it will help you manage the conversation moving from the point where you've initially made contact all the way up to the point where they've become a customer. And then even after they've become a customer, still managing some of that sales communication communication, the upsells and things like that. Or even if somebody stops becoming a customer, you can add them into an email sequence that's like a, an offboarding email sequence, for example, and feed that information back into the system. So yeah, that's the general direction, I'll say. For sure. Well, cool. From my end, I have a couple more podcast recommendations that came to us via Twitter and our comment thread for episode 395. And then I have a couple books I want to talk about that I have attempted to or have been listening to. So the two podcasts that came through, one is from Josh Duty, and he is you know, a longtime listener, MicroConf attendee, and he talked about Econ Talk, which is a podcast I've never heard of. And he said, it's a must-listen podcast for your list. I've listened to every episode, and it's probably the single most valuable intellectual resource I've found. It's great for understanding economics, but he's branched out to interviews in lots of other areas over the past few years. Can't recommend it enough. So interesting podcast that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll certainly add to my list and listen to a few episodes and see if it strikes my fancy. And the other podcast is called Exponent and is recommended by Joe Hopkins. And he says, hey, Robin Mike, thanks for sharing your podcast list. You might like Exponent by Ben Thompson, the creator of the Stratechery blog. And that's a really, I like that blog a lot. It explores the business models and strategies of major tech players like Google, Apple, Uber, Facebook. Somewhat contrarian, but provides a different point of view, more well thought out point of view than a lot of media. So those are two to potentially add to your podcatcher. And then a couple of books that I've been listening to. One that I really like is called Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in Silicon Valley. And it's the story of Theranos. Have you heard of Theranos, Mike? Yes, I have. <laughs> so you know the story of how it imploded. So the author, uh, John Carreyrou, is basically walking through the whole history. And he interviewed a bunch of people and put together all the, the you know, got emails and is doing direct quotes. So it kind of feels a little bit like a Nick Bilton, you know, like a hatching Twitter uh, or, or a book like that, where it just week by week tells the story. 
So the founder of Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, was like 19, maybe? She dropped out of college to start it. And I don't know if the company started when she was 19, but she, it was definitely her early 20s. And she was just had this youthful hubris and so young and so naive. And she basically was like faking demos early on with this. It, it was basically a patch that was supposed to take blood samples and look at stuff in the blood. And the, the product never worked is in essence what it sounds like this book is saying. But they would fake demos to, to even to investors and they would fake demos to potential clients like Pfizer and these big drug companies. And so it's just mind blowing. It's like, you, you just can't do that, you know, but it was like, she had this reality distortion field. They were saying she was trying to be Steve Jobs and she switched to kind of a wardrobe of wearing black turtlenecks and she would bully her people and they would just turn over constantly. They turned over the entire senior leadership team over the course of a year. They turned over most of their employees and then they would just hire new ones. And it was just this, it's just this insane tale of like mismanagement, hubris, and thinking that the ends justify the means. And they would sue anyone, like the employees would leave and then they would like sue them if they spoke out at all. I mean, it was like they were trying to keep everybody silenced to the fact that this thing didn't work. So Anyways, I'm only, I'm probably 25% of the way in. It's a really good story. It's a little bit aggravating because she just, she thinks she's Steve Jobs and that always pisses me off. It's so irritating, you know, when people take, take that tact of like, well, he did it and so I can do it too. But it's like, yeah, but it worked for him, you know, and, and you're not gonna be able to reproduce that. So anyways, it's, it's kind of something that if, if you can stomach it, it's kind of painful to listen to, but if, if you can stomach it, it's a really, um, really well-told story. Awesome. Yeah, I've I've seen them in the news quite a bit. And, you know, obviously, like all the stuff is coming out after the fact. So I'd definitely be interested in kind of seeing the uh, the inside scoop on some of that. I totally agree with you about people who are going out and thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to be the next Steve Jobs and the unjustified this means. And that can be true to an extent, but you have to be successful at it. Because <laughs> if you're not, then the whole thing's going to implode. Like, there's no way around that. Like, you're really skating on thin ice. And you can't be, I don't know, you can't violate the law when you're doing that either. Like, you can't you just can't yeah that was a big problem yeah yeah and that's the thing is it's like you know you look at someone like steve jobs who who people say really was very hard to work with and he was a bully and he just had all these really odd traits but he figured out a way to make it work and one of the ways is that you know he was he was what a decamillionaire by the time he was 21 and that that kind of helped like they had that success with the apple one and the apple two if you don't have that and you try to have this attitude and and you basically burn all these bridges and you you burn out all your people and you burn your relationships like it just crumbles and and the odds of you then even achieving that first success just plummet in my opinion so uh, yeah it's a tough one the other book that i started reading uh, or listening to and then just bailed on it if anyone's considering reading this book i really didn't enjoy it. it's called valley of the gods a silicon valley story and it follows like three or four aspiring founders in essence but it really doesn't, I got the feeling the book really didn't know what it was about. And it was just kind of wandering. And it talked about the Teal Fellowship. And then it talked about these founders doing stuff. And eventually I was just like, I, I just don't care. You know, I don't care about the people and I don't care about the stories that are going on. So, which was a bit disappointing because I, I was kind of love these, these tales of startups. But, you know, again, if you're thinking about listening to it, I would probably, or reading it, I'd probably recommend maybe skipping that one. Something else I wanted to do today, Mike, is revisit our 2018 goals. It is approaching midway through the year, and uh, I think we talked about them back in maybe February or March. So, you know, we have listener questions that we're going to dive into, but I think it's always helpful to kind of get status updates a couple times a year as we as we progress to figure out, you know, where are we with our goals, have our goals changed, and um, just sanity check where we're at. 
So I guess I'll, I'll kick things off. One of my carryover goals was logging at least 100 days worth of exercise this coming year. And I was, uh, I'll say the first couple of months, I was a little lax just because I had a lot of things going on. But I am happy to say, I think last month I logged 13 days at the gym. So slowly getting up there. I think I'm, I'm a little bit behind right now. I'm thinking around 130 or so, something like that. But yeah, so it's it's June now. By the end of June, I should be at 50. So if I did 20 days, which is probably unlikely this month, just because I, I know I've got, I'm going to be gone for a week for family vacation, then uh, I would get to about halfway. So I'm slightly behind, but I think that I'm definitely optimistic that I'll be able to catch up and hit that goal this year. Very cool. My first goal was to write a virtual reality program that allows me to roll around in a mattress of Bitcoins. Wait, that was the goal that you set for me. You remember that? Uh, yes, I do. How's that coming, I, by the way? I have not started doing that. Yeah. Well, you've got seven more months. <laughs> I do. I do. I'm going to, it's not even going to be VR. It's just going to be an R program, a reality program where I actually roll around on a mattress of Bitcoins, a bunch of thumb drives containing stuff. Now, my, my first serious goal was to have fewer, be in fewer meetings under 10. I think you cheated. 10 hours a week. You cheated. <laughs> I <didn't>, you cheated. <laughs> I did not know in December of 2017 what was going to happen in 2018, but I have nailed this one, Mike. Just nailed it. I'm sorry, man. You cheated. Oh, I love it. I love it. So, yeah, for those who aren't, aren't understanding what we're laughing about is by leaving Drip in, uh, you know, at the end of April, I have basically, I'm in almost no meetings now. I mean, this is one of the only, uh, this is probably the only recurring meeting I have on my calendar now as you and I recording. So definitely achieved that and looking forward to maintaining that through the rest of the year. So my, my other carryover goal was to make blue tick profitable, including my time. And so far, it's I'm cautiously optimistic on this one. Revenue has been going up, clear to kind of another hurdle this past month. So uh, moving things forward and I don't know, well, I've got a couple of annual plans that I've sold as well. So those are definitely helpful in terms of the revenue. And yeah, like I said, I'm, I'll, I'll keep people posted on it. I don't know how much of the numbers I'm actually comfortable sharing at this point, but we'll see. It's something I kind of have to think about. Do you feel like you're on track for this by December? It, or, or is it, it depends? I, you know, I don't know if it's an, it depends. I mean, I, obviously like it depends, but <laughs> I think the issue is like there's certain pieces of it that I'd really like to have in place for like teams. So like I've, I've had a couple of conversations lately with companies that have teams and I know that they want to add multiple people in and it sort of supports that right now, but it's not a great experience. And I, I'm just curious or I question how, how interested they'll be once they see how it actually works versus what their expectations may be. And it could be just like, by the time I get them to the point where they're signed on and onboarded, then I've got that stuff in place and it doesn't matter, but I don't necessarily want to churn them out before then either. You know what I mean? Yep. Totally do. So if this happens, do you feel like you're achieving this goal? Do you feel like it'll be in the last couple months of the year? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's I definitely think that it's going to be a, a later rather than sooner thing. I wouldn't necessarily so the other thing is like summers right now. So I don't expect a whole lot of it to a lot of blue tech to be sold over the next couple of months. But once the end of August hits, I would expect things to kind of start ramping up again. But, you know, I mean, it, it's also like because it's summer, though, and I know that other companies feel like the summer kind of trends downward email follow-ups might interest in it might go up because they know that they're going to have to follow up with people more. So it may save them time. I'm not sure. It's, it's hard to say. Yeah. You know, it was interesting what I, what I was seeing seasonally with really most of my apps that includes SaaS and non-SaaS that, that I've owned is certainly December 
tends to be a train wreck. With one-time purchased software, it would it would plummet. I mean, I would see, I remember .NET Invoice plummeting like 80%. Not every December, but there were months when it would do one-fifth of the revenue that it had done in, in November. But uh, SaaS apps tend to fl- be pretty flat in December unless you just specifically get around that and, and do promotions and such. And then right around tax time, it was either April or May, would tend to not be great months. I never noticed dips in the summer and what's interesting is growing up in California, you know, we really don't have strong seasons. I mean, there's rainy season and and then there's, you know, a lot of sun and there's drought season, which typically lasts seven years. But really, we didn't, like, my work didn't slow down in the summer like it does now that I live here. Like, I live, you know, living in Minneapolis, like, I want to work a lot less. And you've talked about this, too. It's like, you know, if you live in a place where it's snowy and the winter sucks, I feel like, you know, I get more work done in the winter because I'm indoors and then less work done in these sunny times of the year. Whereas, you know, again, in California, that just wasn't a thing. We just kind of worked year round because it was kind of the same. So... I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on where your customers are coming from. I would not anticipate that the summer is going to be flat for your growth. You know, I just don't think, I think people are still doing business and they're still thinking about it now. You know, certainly if if you have a lot of Europeans as your market and you're looking to do it something in August, I bet that month is terrible because I know a lot of folks go on month-long vacations then. And there are other factors to play into it, but all that said, I would not count on any growth in December for you. And then I think from now until, you know, basically Thanksgiving, which is the last week of, of November, I think you got to pedal to the metal of this thing. Cool. Yeah, that, that's, I don't know, comforting, I guess. Um, but we'll see how the actual numbers shake out. You know, predictions are, you know, worth what you pay for them, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. My next goal was to do at least three days of exercise per week. I have far exceeded that. I'm probably averaging five days a week. Uh, and during, when I was still working the day job, I was hitting three then. And sometimes, you know, a, a day of exercise is like, it's 10 or 15 minutes. It's just what I can get in. It might be, you know, a quick bike ride around the lake, which is like three miles. So it's not the like longest ride uh, of all time, or I'll do like a 10 minute CrossFit thing, but just something to get the heart rate up. And that's, that's been going. So I, I feel like I probably need to, I don't know if I want to increase this for next year, but definitely I'm, I'm meeting and exceeding that goal. And that feels, you know, it feels good to do that. Cause this is the first year probably ever, or I mean, since college that I have, you know, consistently exercised next goal on my list was to read one business book at least every two weeks. And I think at this point, I actually might kill this one just because I've I've only read a couple, but with my uh, backing off of podcasts earlier in the year, I've been backing off of like just consumption of stuff in general. I don't know as this is even realistic, even if I were to try at this point, like I don't, I just don't see it happening. So I think I want to kill this one. Yep. I think it's a good one. I would agree with you. I, I feel like it's a distraction from your your real goal, which is to stay physically healthy with exercise and to get your business to the place of profitability. You know. Yep. Cool. Uh, my last goal for 2018 was to ship something. I wrote a little paragraph in December when we originally talked about this, and it said this. I'm not sure what it's going to be yet, but I've been laying low for about 18 months. 2017 was supposed to be a rest year, and it was a hard year. So the first part of 2018 is going to continue to be rest, but I need to start shipping either consistent blog posts, a book, a new podcast, a course, software, or something. And 
I will say that, you know, Sherry and I shipped the Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, which Sherry did the vast majority of the of the work on that. But I assisted with with the launch and the promotion and and writing the copy and writing emails and stuff like that to market it. In addition, um, we have a course that is coming out. It's actually a good time to talk about it, actually. Um, I haven't talked about it yet on the podcast, but if you go to zenfounder.com, one of the products under the, the How We Help menu is Founder Family Date Night Video Course. And it's a, a six-part video course. It's 20 minutes to kind of get you in the, the mindset of something. And then there's a handout that you take and you're supposed to go on a date with your significant other. It's all about keeping you like connected and just founders don't have a lot of time and don't have a lot of headspace in general to connect with the person that probably is most important to them, right? It's their their life partner, their significant other. And that's what this course is designed to do is to kind of shortcut that and give you pre-built stuff to go and have a conversation about different topics. So if you're interested in, in learning about that, you can obviously go sign up for the Zen Founder mailing list and we'll be selling that probably in the next few weeks, I believe. So that also, feel, I mean, I was involved, you know, I was filming, there was a half day, full day of filming, and then have been involved honing the, the landing page and the copy stuff. So it definitely feels like I am keeping busy. It feels good. So I don't know. I guess the verdict's out. I, I feel like those those count towards this goal of shipping something in quotes to kind of ramp up. And I, I'm guessing in 2019, I'll need to be a little more specific and perhaps a little more uh, ambitious with this one. The other goals on my list were, the first one was to hire somebody to take over Blue Tick development. And the second one was to speak at six plus conferences or events this coming year. And uh, so I've spoken at two so far. I've not reached out to people to kind of like expand my profile or whatever to get on the docket for different speaking engagements. So I'm not sure how that one's going to turn out. So um, we'll kind of see how that plays out. But the other one for hiring somebody to take over blue tick development, I'm, I'm wondering if I should actually change this from blue tick development to implementing certain marketing strategies. Because I think that the, at this point, like I don't think that I could hire somebody at the level that I need to take over blue tick development. I just don't think that I could afford it. So I do think that I could outsource certain parts of like marketing. So like different marketing campaigns, for example, like, Hey, I need this to be done. And these are the things that, you know, like scope out what needs to get done and then hire somebody to do them. So when I had, for example, the, all the copy rewritten for the website, like that was something that was a lot easier to outsource because it was, it was skilled labor, but it needed to get done. And it was an expertise that was, I'll say somewhat unfamiliar to me. And it was easier to just hand it off to somebody else versus with the blue tick development, there's a lot of stuff there and it'd be I think really hard and really expensive to hire somebody. And I don't know that given where I'm at and my goals for making it profitable by the end of the year, I don't think that I could get there. Not without funding, for example. What was the mindset behind that goal? It was to allow me to do the marketing. <laughs> okay. Um, that was that was it. It was because I needed time to do the marketing and the development stuff needed to get to a certain point. And it is, I would say that it's not necessarily too far off. I mean, there's a few, I'd say two or three major things that need to get done in terms of development. And then I could probably push hard, much more harder on the marketing side of things. I don't know. It's, it's a balancing act, I'll say. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because like, like I said, there's, there's just tons of code there and it's all in different technologies. And it's just hard to find somebody who's familiar with most of them. Yeah, it always it always is. I mean, it's always a balancing act, like you're saying. That's like the struggle of of starting up from a standing stop and trying to get something to the point that is profitable. These are definitely the hardest. These are the hardest and most uncertain times. So, all right. So, yeah. So you may adjust that goal then is to hire someone to help take over other stuff. 
Yep. Cool. Well, um, now that we've done that, we'll probably revisit these again in three or four months. Let's dive into a few listener questions. Our first voicemail is actually a listener success story. Mike and Rob, Kevin Wagstaff here from Spectora. I wanted to call in and give you guys a huge, over, long overdue thank you. Um, we have taken our company, Spectora, as a bootstrap startup from 0 to 40 MRR in 16 months. Um, we launched January 2017 after many months of listening to every single one of your podcasts, and we have come out the gates screaming. So we've had a ton of success. Wanted to share it with you guys. Hope to be on your success stories at some point and maybe even be on the show. So um, we've learned so much from you. Thanks. Well, congratulations to Kevin. That's that's awesome news that you've gotten that far with Spectora in such a short amount of time. It sounds like you've really you know gotten a lot of value out of the podcast, and really appreciate you just reading back and letting us know that you've been able to take your business to the next level because of it. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. And just one note there, he said zero to 40 MRR obviously meant 40,000. So that's a pr for a bootstrap startup to do that in 16 months is um, pretty sweet. They're in the home, it looks like home inspection software space which I'm imagining could be both a challenging, but also uh, you know, a challenging vertical, but also one that if you got in there and you become kind of the name, it'd be really, really hard to topple you from that. The next question is actually a comment from Matthias Bedard from swap.com. Looks like swap has three A's, S-W-A-A-P.com. He says, hey, Rob, I'm, I thought I'd reach out and congratulate you on the drip acquisition and your current unemployed status. I was listening to your appearance on the Rogue Startups podcast. I was on it a couple weeks ago. And I found your take on micro fundraising interesting, since that's more or less what we have done. It's cool because we've been able to maintain control and own most of the company, but we have had to put in a lot of our own money, spend a lot of time applying for government grants, and take on a lot of side projects to keep the lights on. In the end, I'm glad we took the route we took. And we've definitely learned a lot doing so. I treasure the learning experience, but I think if we had an investor or someone on board with more knowledge of the SaaS space and monetization strategies, we could have moved faster and taken more advantage of some of the tech we've built, like our event matchmaking platform. I'm also an avid listener, starter to the rest of us. Just want to say I really appreciate that you guys take the time to throw a bit of your knowledge out every week. Cheers. So it sounds like they didn't take funding, but they wished they had, right? That he feels like it would have kept the, them from having to do the side projects, the government grants, and basically they said they had to put a lot of, our, of their own money into it. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting take on it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's always the trade-off. Like, if you take money, then you don't have to do those things, but you also are going to have to give up some, or probably more, control of the company. So it's just a matter of like how much, how much you're willing to give up and sacrifice in exchange for that uh, equity. Our next question is a voicemail from a longtime listener and question asker. His name is Owen, and we'll roll that right here. Hey Rob and Mike, this is Owen from Bite Size Irish Gaelic. I'm a long-term listener, so I have to start by saying thanks so much for all the information and knowledge and opinions that you have shared over the years. I remember Rob talking about thinking about doing something different after Hittail, I think, and then it turned out to be Drip, and uh, then it turned out to be selling Drip after growing it, 
and ending your time there, Rob. So it was really cool to follow that whole journey. So thanks for sharing it along the way. Uh, my question is, I have what you would say is against wisdom. It's a B2C SaaS app for learning the Irish language. We target people outside of Ireland. So they're people who emotionally want to make a connection to their Irish heritage by learning to speak some of that language, right? So there are local groups that get together. They have immersion weekends, yearly events in different uh, places. And my question is, how would you think about trying to tap into those audiences to get our app in front of them, or get in front of those people? Like, probably I'm thinking sponsoring an event and getting our logo displayed just wouldn't do anything. The one idea I did have was asking the organizers to send a direct email to attendees and uh, offer some kind of discount for our app that they could click through. Anyway, if you have any thoughts, ideas, I'd appreciate it. And thanks a lot for your time anyway. See it. Yeah, I have a bunch of thoughts on this. Uh, so there's a, there's two answers to this. First one is a general thing that says that if you're going to try and market at a, an event or sponsor an event that you're not attending, it's probably not going to work. And I say that in reference more to larger events. So if you're talking 100, 200 people or larger than that, it's probably not going to get you nearly as much as if you were to attend it. But it sounds like Owen is going after, from the sounds of it, like a, an immersion weekend where it's probably not a huge number of people. You're probably talking and less than 50. And I think in those cases, what you could do is you could approach the organizer and say, hey, I've got this workshop in a box that you could give to everybody there. So it's take an hour to go through and give them all the materials for it and then see if they'll go through that workshop as part of like whatever your sponsorship is for the, for the immersion weekend. And from there, once people are done with that workshop, then you give them a handout of like, hey, here's a coupon code that you can go and sign up for this if you're interested in hearing more about it. So that way they get to experience it and somebody is personally delivering it and that person is not you. But I think that you have to do a really good job about that bite-sized Gaelic in a box thing that you send to them. And I wouldn't shy away from sending them something physical where they've got handouts and things like that and just ask them, hey, how many people do you have? And that can be a part of what you're doing as a sponsorship because when they walk away from the, from the event with something in their hand, they're much more likely to be interested in it. And they have that thing that they can always reference as opposed to something when that gets sent in an email, which may easily get lost or overlooked. But it, it, it avoids the spam filters as well. But that's probably my advice for something like that. Generally speaking, though, sponsoring an event from far doesn't isn't something that generally works, but I was a member of Friends of Redgate program for a while, and that's one of the things that they did was they would send their Friends of Redgate around, and in exchange for giving them free software, they would have them do demos essentially on their behalf. It worked out well in, in both directions, but it got them the marketing experience or the marketing exposure that they needed to smaller groups by having somebody just do the demo, and that person-to-person -person interaction is really key. That's what I was thinking is if you could find a way that either the organizer or someone there could do a demo and, you know, if you sponsor the food that they eat or, or whatever, even if you just, you know, whatever amount of money you, you, you decide it's, it's worth to test out, you 
have them do a demo, you know, and I guess the, the trouble there is if you think they're not going to do a, a good job of it, then maybe you have to record your 60 minute screencast commercial in essence that they play at the beginning. And then they do get something I would, you know, I, I like getting mentioned in the email so that it'll remind them, as Mike said, it could go in spam filters or could get misplaced. But I think it's, it's the multiple touch points, right? You want to get mentioned at the start. You then want to have that software somehow demoed so people can get their heads around it because typically most non-techies struggle to understand how software is going to help them. And so seeing how easy it is or seeing what it actually does, I think would be the game changer. And I think if you can't get a demo, and like you said, if you just get your logo somewhere or you just get a screenshot, I don't, I don't think it's worth even a small amount of money to, to do it. But if you can get the software working in front of them, I think it's a much bigger deal. Well, that's why I like the. That's why I said that the uh, the workshop in a box thing could because if if it's like an immersion weekend, you're not guaranteed to have an internet connection either. So that's by having it there, it gets around that. And then if it's also like a if you give them a video file that they can play locally through an iPad or a laptop or something like that, then that gets around you know the, any any internet connectivity problems that you might have. I also wouldn't go with like an hour long demo. I might do five minutes to open as like a video and you talking about it and then have the organizers essentially manage the rest of it for whatever it is, like half hour or 45 minutes or something like that. But it really has to be the right event for that kind of thing. I think it'd be hard to do it if it was a immersion weekend for some other language or something like that. It'd be, I think it'd be tough. Yeah, I like your idea. I think that workshop in a box is a really savvy approach. And our last question for the day is about the IP of feature requests, IP standing for intellectual property. It's from Scott, and he says, can you guys talk about accepting feature requests from users of SaaS apps? Are there any IP concerns or something we should add in our terms of service to cover feature requests and ideas submitted by users? What do you think, Mike? That is a really good question, and I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's I don't know. I I would think that that like having an idea for something that should be added to a product is not something you could ever ask them to put in there and then have any expectation that they're going to do it and that you would own it because it was your idea. It seems to me like that's a, a foregone conclusion, but maybe there's something in most terms of service that say specifically that ideas submitted are are not subject to that and you will, you'll get no compensation for them. I don't know. It's, it's not something I've really given a lot of thought to. I'm also not a lawyer, but I've never seen anything like that. I've never noticed anything like that in terms of service. And I believe that I have read, uh, I haven't read a lot of them, but I've read enough, you know, terms of service when I've had lawyers draw them up for me that I've never, I've never noticed that offhand. You could certainly go, just go to a big company, look at GitHub's or Dropboxes or lead pages or drips, you know, terms of service, because they have big legal teams who draft these things up. And if there's no precedent for anyone ever suing and somehow taking ownership of an idea they sent you or posted on some board, then there probably isn't anything in these terms of service and you're probably fine. I feel like also, if you wanted to throw one sentence in, it says like any feature requests or ideas is submitted become the property of us. You could do that. I have never, in all honesty, I've never heard of anyone being sued over something like this or even it being an issue where people requesting things feel like they own the idea or something. I don't know. There's, it's, I've just never even thought about it in all honesty. So I think that about wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupstherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Route of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups, and visit startupstherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
All right. Now you want to kick on the after hours. So I decided that, you know how I always say what happens in the after show stays in the after show. I don't think that we should do that anymore. I think if people want to talk about it, they can. Am I right? As long yeah. as long as they don't, um, I had borrowed that from Stacking Benjamins, which is where I first heard this, but uh, as long as they don't, because we're going to spoil a movie today, and as long as you don't, you know, put those spoilers on, on Twitter or something, uh, we are going to spoil and talk about Solo, a Star Wars story. So if you have not seen that movie and you don't like spoilers, because I actually have friends who really like to be spoiled on things, but if you don't like spoilers, then you should stop now and head off to another podcast. I like to be spoiled with $100 bills. $100 here, Mike. I'm going to spoil you with donations of big fat cash. So what do you think, man? Because, you know, Solo's really getting lambasted, right? It's got, got Rotten Tomato reviews really bad. What, what was your take on it? I am certainly not like as down on it as Rotten Tomatoes is or as what I've seen people comment on Twitter. I thought it was a decent movie. That said, I don't necessarily think that it was like fantastic and was like, oh, you've got to go see this in the movie theater. Like it was, it was fine. It was, it was kind of what I expected from a movie in general that I go to see at the theater, but maybe it fell a little short in terms of most of the Star Wars movies that I've seen recently. It was definitely better, I think, than any of the prequel movies. Certainly not nowhere near as good as the Rogue One, but you know, it was a, it was passable for a story and had a decent plot. I don't know. There, there weren't any major gaping holes that I noticed right away, but I don't know. What, what was your take on it? I walked out of the movie. I turned to my brother who was in town and I said, you know, that was a good movie. It wasn't great, but it was good. Like I enjoyed it. And I felt like it was, it was a, basically a heist film told in the Star Wars universe with characters that I, you kind of know, or kind of know of, you know, it's like you got the Lando and you're fleshing out Han Solo. I didn't think that the actor who played Han Solo was nearly as good as Harrison Ford, but so few are, you know, but I, but I thought he did a, he did a very good job. I thought the plot was a little too straightforward. I kept waiting for more twists and I didn't, you know, I was, I was not wildly surprised by how everything played out. But with that said, I'm like you, I don't understand how everyone is so down on this film. And I saw an article like, is this the, is the Star Wars franchise waning? You know, is this the end for Star Wars? It's like, come on people. Are you kidding me? Like this was a good film and it, it, it made like $150 million in its opening weekend. It was below their expectations, but it, what, you know, it didn't do what Rogue One did, but it, to your point, I thought Rogue One was a phenomenal film. And I thought, you know, I really enjoyed it. I know some people didn't, but I thought it was really well done. And I thought Solo was was a was a good. It was a totally worth it. In fact, I've seen it twice. I saw it once with my brother and my youngest child. And then when my, my oldest son came back, he really wanted to see it. So I went with him again. And I'll say I thought I was going to be a little bored because, you know, you already know what's going to happen. But actually, I enjoyed it again. And the time, I might even have enjoyed it more the second time. There was a lot of elements that I caught and a lot of kind of, there's a lot of Easter eggs in it, which I think are cool. They mentioned the names of bounty hunters. And then they mentioned, you know, they mentioned Bosk at one point. And there's, there's like a crystal skull because there's always Indiana Jones Star Wars crossovers. I don't know if you ever saw a Cafe Obi-Wan was in one of the Indiana Jones movies. You know, they do that kind of stuff. So there was a, a crystal skull in, in one of the, um, it was in the Crimson Dawn guys. I forget his name, but it was in his little ship there. So I thought they did a good job. I'm not bothered. You know, people complain about the fan service and how like they're pandering too much to the fans, but it's like, I enjoy that stuff. It's inside jokes. And if you catch them, 
they're cool. And if you don't, it doesn't matter. And you don't notice when they mention a name that you just don't recognize. That's probably from some expanded universe novel or something. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I, I thought it was a fine movie. One thing I, I felt like they probably could have done a lot more with was the interplay between Lando and Han Solo in terms of him winning the Millennium Falcon. I felt like that should have been a bigger deal than they made it out to be, or it should, should have been more of a story there other than him having like a card up his hand that Han Solo stole, which was easy to see coming. You know, it's, you saw that coming from a mile away. It was just like, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. And, and maybe I've just read too many of the books. So I kind of knew what was going to happen anyway, but, um, right. I mean, cause I, I knew that he won it in a card game. Right. And I knew it was Sabak. So I knew it was, yeah. Good. Yeah. I wasn't, so I wasn't bothered by that, but I, I can understand, I can understand where you're coming from. Yeah. I, I wasn't bothered by it. It was just like, Oh, this is kind of like a run of the mill piece of the story. Whereas I expected them to make it a little bit more of a big deal or more of a, not a surprise ending, but I don't know. I expect them to play through like the cards or to have some sort of a strategy there or something like that, that actually made it look like, Oh, he wasn't going to win, but he pulled out this card and the other guy was known to not be cheating. It was just like the way they said Lando to be cheating. It's just like, Oh, of course, like now he knows the guy's cheating. So of course he's going to find a way to win by taking the card away from him. It's like, yeah, whatever. Right. Yeah, it was pretty straightforward. And it definitely was, you know, again, in seeing it, I saw the movie again yesterday. It was a two hour and 15 minute film. And that was like a three minute scene at the end. And so I definitely felt like they were probably trying to cram it in a little bit. They wanted to show the story, but I, I think they could have beefed it out a little more if they had more time in the in the movie. I don't think they wanted a two and a half hour, two and a half hour movie. One thing I did like about it was I liked how um, the droid, the female droid who was with, it was basically Lando's co-pilot. I liked how you know, he implied she had the best navigational computer in the galaxy. And they basically, she became part of the Falcon. I loved that, mm -hmm. that whole thing. And it implies, well, you always wonder like, yeah, Han's a good pilot, but like, why is the Falcon so special? And it's like, that is why. And I thought, I really liked that piece, that element of it that kind of explained that. Yeah, I did too. Uh, that was a really good uh, addition. It was unexpected as well, um, which I think also kind of adds to it. And they've re referred back to C-3PO when he, he, in Empire Strikes Back, the first time he plugs into the Falcon, he says, your ship has such a peculiar dialect. And that's what they're saying is like, he's talking to L3 who had that very unique, yes. right? I mean, she was very opinionated and just had a unique sensibility. So I thought that was very undroid-like. Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely, definitely. What's the next Star Wars uh, movie that's coming out? I keep hearing like rumors, and I try not to pay too much attention to them because it's a time sink. But there's uh, there's rumors of like a Boba Fett movie, and then there's rumors of like an Obi Wan Kenobi movie. That those are the two I've heard as well. Those are the the, the anthologies, the non Skywalker stories in essence. Because mm -hmm. obviously, Episode Nine is coming out next year. Is it? I don't know if Nine is 2019 or 2020, but yeah, I think Boba Fett's the next offshoot. And and again, it's rumors, but and it hasn't been announced which I think would be good. Here's the thing, like in the films, I remember thinking, yeah, Boba Fett's a bounty hunter. He's, he's kind of cool, whatever. Now that I've read a bunch of the, I, I haven't read the, the novels, but I've read tons of comic books around the Star Wars universe. Boba Fett is a badass in the books. Like he is awesome. And I have so much more respect for him now. So I finally get why he should probably have his whole, you know, his entire own film. And I see that they could fill it up with all kinds of stories because I've read many one shots and many graphic novels where Boba Fett's in them and they're super entertaining. Yeah, and they, they definitely don't do Boba Fett justice in obviously like the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. But I mean, even when Jango Fett makes an appearance in the prequels, like 
you get the impression that Boba Fett is just an extension of Jango Fett because obviously, like, he's a clone of him anyway. But there's, it, it, I think it leads you to believe that they are basically the same and they're really not. Like, they're very, very different from one another. Yeah. And one thing, you know, one thing I didn't like about Solo was Darth Maul coming back. It's like, come on, guys, you killed the character and now, but he was so popular. That's how I feel, right? It's like he was such a popular character they killed in episode one. And now they're going to bring him back with metal legs, right? Because see, he was in, he's in the Clone Wars cartoon or animated series and he has like metal spider legs, but it was very cartoonish, right? And it's like, yeah, they can do that in there. But it's like, if you do that in the films, it's like, well, now I can't trust you guys as filmmakers and storytellers, right? Are you going to bring Obi-Wan back too? Are you going to bring Darth Vader back? You know, it's like these people, they're gone. And you should, I, I don't know. I felt cheated in all honesty. Yeah. I, I, I think Star Wars is known for not doing that kind of thing where you like bring somebody back to life just because they were a popular character or because you want to make a, uh, a new movie or something like that. I mean, I, I, when that, when that came up, I, I immediately thought, okay, this is their opportunity to make a sequel where there's a bad guy because they literally just killed the bad guy at the end of the movie. So like there wasn't really anywhere else that they could have taken the story, which given how it's doing in the box office, maybe they probably should have just let it go and then have it completely open-ended. But now it's like they're forced into this plot line if they want to have a follow-on movie. Yeah, it's tough. But overall, I give it, I give it a thumbs up. I think it's worth seeing. I, I think the effects are, really good i loved the i mean the effects these days are so good but the star wars effects are just amazing when they're going through the maelstrom and there's that big scary jellyfish thing and the black hole i don't know it's just it, it is visually stunning and i i think if you if you're gonna see it you should see it in the theater once just to get the majesty of it all one thing that is uh, completely unrelated to this go on youtube when you get a chance and search for darth vader versus obi-wan kenobi reimagined and it somebody basically took the the lightsaber duel between darth vader and obi-wan from episode 4 and redid it as if obi-wan was uh, i'll say a lot more athletic and it was it, it'll give you chills man like if you're if you're into those types of things and you're you're really into the story like you watch that and you're like wow no, one how did they do that because it's just amazing display of special effects but two like they're both like darth vader is way more aggressive in that like very much like rogue one when he comes through and he just starts slaughtering everybody like that's what it's like the two of them going at it and him going after obi-wan kenobi it's really really good that's cool i'm kind of watching the thumbnail here it already looks pretty amazing yeah how did they do that's what i'm i just don't know how you would do this you know well i mean it's computer graphics cgi like that's yeah uh, that's how you would do it and because they, they could probably take a lot of that stuff and convert like the still images into 3d models and then use those three 3d models to basically re-render everything yeah, that's because you've got like uh, an entire movie where you can take those still images of them in different poses and different things and then just do some interpolation between like poses and say, oh, this is what the person would look like. And then you re-render re the whole thing. Yeah, that is now that I've in thumbnail, it looks like live action. But when you click into it, you can tell that it's actually animation. So very cool, man. I will watch this. We should probably wrap this up. Yep. Time to uh, go make the donuts or something. Sounds good. <laughs> Take All it right, easy. Later. All right.